welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So there's uh, three ways you know if a worship leader is going to be good. First thing, they have two guitars. <laughs> Second thing, did you see him? He, Bob, how do you do that? Like when he hits the chord, he kind of <clears throat> grimaces. That's... <laughs> That's like, I knew, I saw that during, between service, I thought, he's going to be good. And then the third thing, Nashville. I mean, say no more. You come, in Nashville, they, they, yeah, yeah, they give the, did you, did you get it? Where are you going? Oh, okay, okay. But (laughs) in Nashville, when you're born, they give you a smallpox injection and a music injection. And, and, And that's why everybody in Nashville can sing well. But, uh, man, I, I like being led in worship by that guy. I hope he comes back. Oh, he's back. Oh, thank you, Jesus, you're back. <laughs> okay, my name's Reed. You don't know me, but I don't usually get invited back. But anyway, I was here, I was here two weeks ago, and uh, the lights, oh, the lights are out now. But um, they were, you had electrical problems and so on. But uh, it's great to be back. Uh, we're, we're in the midst of a series about, it's all about Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but, but we live in a very uh, hurried and harried age. You know, they invented some little devices. You guys, have you guys ever heard of a cell phone? Before the cell phone was the laptop, and before the laptop was the desktop, and these were thought to be time-saving devices. But, and you all have tons of time, right? And everybody in the room, you, we have so much time because these time-saving devices have saved so much time, but actually... When these all came into fruition, the opposite happened. And uh, we as Americans, we have these little cell phones, and we check them on average, get this, every 4.3 minutes. And I know what this section is thinking. You think, I've never gone for 4.3 minutes without (laughs) checking. But 85,000 times a year, and we just work, work, work. Uh, and, And we're paying for it. We work longer hours, even as we binge on Netflix uh, shows, uh, we suffer epidemic levels of anxiety, we sleep less, we are craving productivity. Uh, in, in both senses of the word, we are a restless people. We rest less, and even when we're resting, we're restless. Uh, that's just the, the state of our, of our souls. We, we look at a passage this morning in John chapter 5, and if you're not there, you can turn there. And as I said to you two weeks ago, I'm going to ask you to... Uh, Close your Bibles and hear God's Word, but you'll want to be there because we're going to look at some very specific parts of this. But uh, we're going to see a passage that addresses our need for rest. In fact, everything we're going to look at is points to this in this one direction, that we're invited into a deeper rest than we've ever imagined. Uh, that's the point of the passage. So with that in mind, uh, before we know too much, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And again, I'm going to ask you just to hear it listen to it. You can close your eyes, you can look at me, but uh, if you can, try to avoid looking at the text, and then we'll look at it more specifically. But here's what John writes. John says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 
when Jesus saw him, he said to him, and Jesus saw him and knew that he'd been, already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to the sick man, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews came to the man who had been healed. And they said, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, The man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are healed Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went and found the Jews and told them that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why they were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why they were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Okay. We are by the sheep gate where there is a pool called Bethsaida, which means house of mercy. And the passage, again, is inviting us into deep, deep rest. Now, we're going to find that rest by looking at three statements that Jesus makes. All of them are shocking, uh, and they become increasingly so as we go on. But we're going to see three statements, get up, sin no more, and my Father is working, I am working. So what is Jesus teaching with these three statements? Look at, let's look at the first one, get up. Now, the context is there's a feast of the Jews. John is the writer who loves to talk about Jewish feasts. And if I were to ask uh, you, and if you've been around the world of the Bible much, I'd say, how long was the ministry of Jesus? You would say, three years. Uh, And you say, well, how do we know that? We know that from John's gospel because John mentions specifically three Passover feasts. And this could be actually a fourth because he doesn't tell us what feast it is. So John loves to talk about the feasts, and Jesus goes to these feasts. That's the context. Well, by the Sheep Gate, there are these five roofed colonnades where invalids are lying or sitting by the shade, and we learn that there are a lot of them. A multitude of invalids are sitting there. Now, the belief was, and if you have an older King James Bible, there's actually an extra verse in there that was not a part of the original text, but the belief was that it's a superstition that an angel would come from time to time and stir up the water, and first one into the pool gets healed. 
So these people would sit year after year hoping to be the first one to get into the pool. We have no idea if anyone ever actually experienced a healing, but they were uh, credulous to the extent that this is where they lived their lives. Now, two numbers in the passage bear enormous symbolic significance. First is the number five, and the second is the number 38. Five is kind of typical in John. Uh, how, many women, uh, how, many, how many husbands did the woman have at the well? Five husbands. And here we have a, some porticos, some, some uh, uh, colonnades. There are five of them. And any Jew hearing the number five would immediately think of the Old Testament and the Bible within the Bible, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was the Jews wrapped their lives in this book, this book that was called the Book of Moses or the Torah, uh, or sometimes just called the Book of the Five. Uh, this was uh, the way the Jews wrapped their lives. And over and over again, John is showing us as the readers that, that what Jesus offers is far superior to what went on in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of this law. The other number is, it only comes up here as far as I know, 38. Uh, what, what is the significance of 38? 38 is years. That's a long time. Wouldn't you agree? So last night... My wife, Lisa, and I, as opposed to any of my other wives, <laughs> um, we went to Casanovas. And you say, why did we do that? Because we're filthy rich, and we just wanted to spend money. <laughs> no, <clears throat> we couldn't afford it, but we went anyway. <clears throat> the reason is, when, uh, 38 years ago, when we got married, we went there for dinner. So, oh, yeah, it's good. And, and we, we went there for dinner, and we kind of had memory lane. You know, that, that, it's still here. They're still in business. They must have some good food. But 38 years is long. What were you doing 38 years ago? <laughs> not much. You were not even thought of, you know. But 38 years ago, get this. If you wanted to buy a house, the interest rate on your mortgage would be 15.5%. That's the highest it ever went in 1981. Your, the color TV that you dreamed of buying was 19 inches, little tiny thing. The average price of a home in the United States was $78,200, and in Carmel, it was $78,300. <laughs> you know, things have changed. That was the year that Sandra Day O'Connor became uh, a Supreme Court justice, first woman in the Supreme Court. Ronald Reagan was sworn in. He was a president of the United States, if you catch and uh, Diana got married to Charlie, and that, all in 1980, 38 years ago. It's a long time. Well, this man has been sitting by the pool all those years. We're not told much about the man other than the fact that he's an invalid. Uh, we don't know how he became such. He, did he have a disease? Was he born this way? Did he have an accident? We're not told. It's not important. But 38 years, what's the symbolic significance of that? Israel wandered in the wilderness 38 years. Now, somebody in the room is saying, I thought it was 40. No, it wasn't. Israel leaves Egypt. They go to the Mount Sinai. They go to Kadesh Barnea. They send the spies in. That took two years. They're supposed to go into the land of promise, and they cower with a lack of faith, and God is very upset with them. The, the land of promise was to be a place of rest, and so God says, you will never enter my rest. One of the big themes of the book of Hebrews, you're not going to go into the rest. And so for 38 years, they wander in the wilderness until the older generation dies away, and then they can cross the land, uh, into the land across the Jordan. Well, Jesus asks this individual, do you want to get well? Do you want to get healed? Hmm. 
He's lived his whole life by the pool. He perhaps has sores on his underside. Growing bitterness is probably his plight. He is stuck with a small circle of friends who likewise are bitter with him. 38 years of never being able to work, never being able to travel, never being able to make love or to cook or to care for children or to fix an ox cart. 38 years of being unnecessary. And Jesus says, would you like to be healed? Would you like to be made well? And before we go on, I just want to pause for a minute and ask myself and ask us, are some of us right there by the pool, stuck, frozen in time? We're sitting in the shade and it's a little bit comfortable, but there's a growing, gnawing bitterness in us. Maybe stuck in the bitterness over what your father did to you or over that colleague that caused you to lose your job, or what happened in your last church, or maybe what happened in this church, or maybe you're fuming over your finances. You thought, boy, at this point in life, I thought I'd be a lot farther along, or your broken health or the death of a loved one. Well, look at verse 7. The man says to Jesus, no one will help me into the pool. Will you? Jesus says, Get up. Now, church, hear this. This is a miracle that happened in time, in history. There was a man who was lying there, and he had a miracle performed on him. He got up and he walked. That was a miracle. At the same time, this story is a parable of our salvation, of the Christian life. It's a vivid illustration of the comprehensive work of God of what happened in Bob's life and what happened in many of our lives. So on the one hand, you have a sick multitude. There are a multitude of invalids. They're deaf to the voice of God. They're blind to the beauty of God. But on the other hand, Jesus approaches one man from the many. And he comes to that man and he says, would you like to be healed? Now, the man wasn't looking to be healed. This is a picture of God's sovereign grace in each of our lives. We can say that we were weak, we were impotent, we didn't want God. In fact, Paul calls us in Romans 5, he says, we were enemies of God. We were hostile to the things of Christ. Jesus takes the initiative. Jesus asks the questions. Jesus does the work. And just as this man can take no credit for his healing, so also we can take no credit for our salvation. And just as this man has been touched and healed by Jesus, this miracle shows us how it happened in our lives. So, what is Jesus saying when he says, get up? He's saying, I am your healer. It is not about the pool. Well, second statement, look at your text. He says to the man, sin no more. Now look at verse 9. We're going to get to that in just a second. Look at verse 9 where in the ESV, and this is an ESV church, and I love you for that. I'm an ESV guy, so we just agree on this. But uh, (laughs) the ESV translates this now. Now that day was the Sabbath, the second half of verse 9. And that's a legitimate translation. In the Greek text, it's a little particle. It's de, D-E. 
But da can also be translated, and I think it should be here, but. I mean, this is the problem in the passage. It's not that the guy got healed, but he did it on Saturday. There's trouble. You broke the no-carrier-bed rule on Saturday. (laughs) Now, in the Old Testament, there was a requirement to work six days and to take a day off. So the Jews find the man, and they say, hey, you know great that you can walk, but we got a much bigger issue here. You, you're, you picked up your bed. That's a no-no. And he's, he's, he's no fool. He says, oh, the guy who healed me, that's the guy you want. That's the man who said, take up your bed and walk. And they, they, they're after Jesus. They say, oh, who is that? And I love it. He doesn't know. You think of the ruckus. This guy's been laying around for decades. He gets up, he walks. This is, you know, Middle East. There's probably a big party going on very quickly. People are shouting and screaming and coming in from the temple, and and he's showing them all, and Jesus just kind of slips out the back door, all right? But then Jesus finds the man in the temple, and he says, whoa, you're, you're looking pretty good. You're looking pretty good. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, high schoolers, are you all in high school? College? Yeah. Enjoy the fact that I thought you were looking. Later in life, you'll be so glad. You'll say, yeah, people think I'm younger than I look, you know, but, or something like that. I don't know. You're, you're going to have to grapple with, and, and everybody in this room has to grapple with, the problem of suffering. Why do, why do people suffer? And Jesus seems to say here, doesn't he? Uh, you're suffering. You're 38 years by the pool. Is, it's your fault. Uh, another translation, another way to translate this, the grammar of this passage, and, and a lot of our English translations reflect this, is stop sinning so that nothing worse may happen to you. Which sounds like, Doggone it, you're stuck here because you did it. All right, there are a lot of answers to the problem of suffering. Secularism, modern secularism, that's what, you know, in our world, atheism, will say, well, you might suffer because of big corporations, you might suffer because of the Republicans, you might suffer because of chance. It just, your number came up, it's just chance. Buddhists and Hindus will say, if you're suffering, that's because of something you did in a former life, and you're you're getting paid back, the law of karma. But in the Christian thought, in the Bible, the problem of suffering is much more nuanced than that. But this passage seems to imply that this guy is suffering because of sins committed in this life. Now, let's ask a question. This is a little segue here. But does the Bible really teach that we suffer because of cancer and car crashes and catastrophe? Is that always our fault? No. In the Bible, watch this, all of suffering has boundaries. We are never abandoned by God when we suffer, scripturally, even though we might not sense his presence. We are always to be aware that God is at work in all of our suffering, even though we might not feel like it. And God always has a purpose in our suffering, even though he might not explain that purpose to us. In fact, he usually doesn't. So I'm going to show you very briefly 
how the Bible makes sense of suffering. We could go on and on about this. We're going to go really quickly. Number one, we suffer because we live in a Genesis 3 world. God created the world and it was perfect, but because of sin, Genesis chapter 3, because of sin, everything changed. And ultimately, all of our suffering is a consequence of sin. Number two, and this is a big pill for some of us to swallow, we are all deserving of and under the judgment of God. The wages of sin is what? It's death. And any day that you and I spend north of hell is a gift from God. It's based on his grace. We deserve nothing from him. That's one of the answers the Bible gives to suffering. Number three, we do reap what we sow. So if you abuse alcohol, you will probably lose your liver someday. If you abuse drugs, you will probably lose your mind much sooner. If you play a lot of tennis, your knees will go as mine are going. And, you know, it's, just, it's a consequence. It's what you sow, you reap. Number four, and this is probably the most tricky because it's hard to know when, but God disciplines those whom he loves. You can read Hebrews chapter 10 and it, it probes this, that God loves us as a father and fathers lovingly discipline their sons and daughters. And number five, one of the reasons we suffer is because of hostility to the gospel. I subscribe to a little uh, email, and you could too, it's free. It's called Morningstar.com, and it's just about the persecuted church worldwide. And probably this week I'll get some email about somebody who suffered greatly for going to a church service like this. There is a lot of hostility toward the gospel. We don't suffer much that way yet, but we might in the future. Okay. Ultimately, all suffering is, is, in the final analysis, a consequence of sin in the universe. The Bible doesn't simplify this. It doesn't gloss over it. But here, the man's suffering does seem to be tied to his own sin. That's the unavoidable implication of the way the story is told. But Jesus says, stop sinning so that nothing worse would happen to you. What would that worse be? I mean, 38 years by a pool, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Well, if the story is illustrating our salvation through the work of Christ, the worst that could happen would be that we would suffer eternity apart from God. And Jesus is inviting this man toward repentance, toward wholeness. Do you remember two weeks ago, those of us who were here, we looked at John chapter 2 in the wedding uh, at Cana in Galilee, and the, the climax of the story was the disciples drank that great red wine and really enjoyed it. Do you remember that? That's in the Bible, right? That's not what it said. I mean, last night at Casanova's, they had a bottle of wine on their menu for $5,000. So we bought it. It was good. <laughs> the wine that Jesus made, I believe, was be is better, was better than what you could buy for $5,000. It's the best wine ever made. But the point of the story is not the goodness of the wine. The point of the story is putting faith in Jesus. And the climax of the story is, and his disciples, what? Believed in him. But in this story, there is no parallel. The man goes and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And we never hear of him again. There is no repentance. No indication that the man worships Jesus. No indication of a changed life. He can walk. That's all he wants. He goes and says, 
yeah, Jesus did it. And if we're honest, many of us say, well, we kind of worship the same Jesus. We want him to get us up and out, but we don't want the rest. The Jews were sitting by the pool of religion, the the pool of rule-keeping. If we can just keep the Sabbath and the other rules, then we'll really live. The paralyzed man was sitting by the pool of superstition, hoping that an angel would come and stir up the water and that one day he would be the first one in. Don't we all tilt in one of these directions, all of us? whether we're Christians or not Christians. I mean, we we place our hope in the stirring of the water, which would be maybe a a further uptick in the stock market or, or finishing our job in two years and getting that pension or another drink or another marriage or another inappropriate website or pleasing my father or mother so that I would get approval. But if we look carefully, when we get the car, when we get the girl, when we get the baby, when we get the retirement, and we think, I will then really walk, we get these things and we find that we're still living in the shadows. Now, what does Jesus say to the man? It's absolutely fascinating. He says, oh, I'm so sorry for your ordeal. Tell me how you feel. This must have been terrible. No. Jesus is not playing the role of a therapist. He's playing the role of God. He says, stop sinning so that nothing worse will happen to you. Repent. Now, Jesus has one more thing to say, and this is a doozy. Look at it. He says, my father is working, and I am working. Oh, my If you look at verse 16, we find out that he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus has a habit of breaking the Sabbath on purpose. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it almost seems like Jesus is sitting around all week doing nothing, and then, oh, it's Saturday, let's go heal some people and get in trouble. (laughs) Verse 17, without being asked, Jesus answers, I'm working. What's he saying? Jesus takes their offense. You healed on Saturday. He takes their offense and he says, oh, it's much worse than that. (laughs) Not only do I break the Sabbath, he's saying, I am the Sabbath. Judith Shulevitz wrote an article some years ago in New York Magazine, not the New Yorker, New York Magazine. And she writes as a secular Jew living in New York who's busy, busy, busy. And she writes about her yearning and kind of memory of growing up celebrating the Sabbath with her Jewish family. And she says this, very profound. She says, on the Sabbath, not only did drudgery, just working, 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 not only did drudgery give way to festivity, watch this, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down. Stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Wow. There is something in each one of us, whether we're in high school or college or senior citizens, that says it's not quite enough. There's an inner murmur of self-reproach. We work hard and then we wonder, am I good enough? Is the lesson plan planned well enough? Have I proved myself? Have I become somebody 
And if we're honest with ourselves, there's something in us that says, oh, my heart still murmurs. There's a little self-reproach there. This is true for school teachers, for stay-at-home moms. This is true for attorneys, pastors, doctors, high school students. It's the story of humanity, a quest for rest, for wholeness. And in one sense, the whole Bible is about this, about this quest to rest. So the people leave the land of uh, Egypt, and they're going to go to the land of promise. And several times they're told, this will be your rest when you get there. And it's not. And the story goes on and on and on, and the prophets begin to tell a time when God will come and the people will get rest. Do you remember the movie Chariots of Fire? It's about two runners who are going to the 1924 Paris Olympics. One of them is restless, and one of them is always at rest. The restless one is Harold Abrams. He's going to run the 100-meter dash and in the locker room, there's a scene with him, and he's, he's sitting there, and he says, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Well, he goes out and wins the gold medal, and when it's over, he is still restless. The other runner is Eric Little, who's on his way to be a missionary in China. He just happens to be a good runner. He finds out that his race is on Sunday, and he won't even run. But he's not crushed by that. He's at rest. He's met Christ. My father is working and I am working. This is an unfettered claim to be God. But what is he saying? He's saying to the Jews and to us, he's saying, you can rest because I am here to work. What is that work? What did Jesus come to do? little test question for you. Don't you love the fact that I pick on you? I'll be back. What did Jesus come to do? Well, one answer would be he came to teach. That's true. He did, but that's not his real work. Another answer, you might say, well, he came to heal people. He did, but that's not his real work. What was his real work? Well, ah, oh, you knew I was going to do that. Oh, well. <laughs> You'd have to have a healing service for me. <laughs> Laying on the stage for 38 minutes. but uh. <laughs> John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he points to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Now, there's his work. On the night of his betrayal, get this, get this. Hours before he goes to the cross, he's praying to the Father, John 17, and he says, Father, the hour has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You see that reciprocal glorification going on? Right after that, John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus says, I, he's, he's praying about the future as if it has already happened. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was that work? Within hours, he will be on a cross, and his last words will be what? It is finished. The work of Jesus was to atone for the sins of everyone who would eventually place their faith in him. So when Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, he's saying, I am one with God the Father. I am the Sabbath. I am your rest. 
just about done. Can you stick with me for one more thought? It's quick. How do we get that rest? How do we get that rest? How do we get that rest and stop striving? How do we get it? Now, I've been a pastor a long time. I've seen all kinds of believers who don't have that rest. How do we get it? Would you believe in the text itself, the answer to get the rest is to do the work? What? That must be true. It's so confusing. The very next chapter, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. Listen, that you may believe him whom he has sent. The work for you and for me is simply to believe and to let him do it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Do you want this deep rest? I know I do. I don't want to strive any longer. I don't want, to, I don't want 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. I am fascinated that Jesus quotes Judith Shulevitz in the first century. You remember? It's in Matthew's Gospel. He said, are you weary of the inner murmur of your soul? Remember that? He says, come to me, and I will give you rest. Lord, may we be among those who have found this rest May we be among the people who, who have, can give up striving and trying to, trying to please somebody or please you. May we enter into that rest. I want to pray for those in this room who have never submitted to your lordship. I want to ask that you would warm their hearts to the gospel, to your lordship, and bring them in right now. And for the rest of us who do know you, Lord. Lord, may we enter this rest and delight that the work is done in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.